If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Caroline Criado-Perez, Cordelia Fine and uh, young Poppy in the front row. <laughs> Caroline's the author of Do It Like a Woman um, that came out um, early last year, wasn't it, from Portobello? Um, or thereabouts, or the end of the year, year before. Yeah, paperback last year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. quite yes. right. Um, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and what you've done. And what I've done, yeah. <laughs> and Cordelia's the author of A Mind of Its Own, uh, delusions of Gender, and most recently, Testosterone Rex, the book we're here to discuss this evening, um, all from Icon, and thank you to everyone at Icon, and especially Andrew for uh, helping us set up this whole business. Uh, please welcome Cordelia, Caroline, welcome. <laughs> so, um, I am both thrilled and terrified to be here talking to an icon of mine, Cordelia Fine. I think Delusions of Gender was the second feminist book I ever read, and I've referred to it repeatedly. I'm slightly embarrassed that Cordelia's read my book, because I quote Cordelia a lot (laughs) in it. (laughs) But it's all cited, so it's fine. Anyway, so we're here to talk about Testosterone Rex, which I have not cribbed yet, but obviously will. For those of you who haven't read it, it's, it's brilliant, and what I particularly like about it is it's just really funny. So many great lines. As all feminist books should, it starts with an anecdote about a testicle key ring. Um, So yeah, I I thoroughly recommend it. So, I mean, let's start with why you chose to, where did the idea for the title Testosterone Rex come from? Yeah, so I have to admit the the title came from an endocrinologist and writer called Richard Francis, who kind of coined the term testosterone. I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I took it and improved it. Um, uh, testosterone rex and I just thought it was such a brilliant nickname to capture this very familiar interconnected set of beliefs that tells us that risk-taking competitive masculinity is uh, wired into the male brain in order to enhance their reproductive success and Mm -hmm. fueled by testosterone and it seemed a particularly perfect sort of um, phrase to capture that because first of all with the reference to rex or king it it, uh, you know, it seems to offer a pleasing explanation for why it is that even today we still have many more men than women in positions of power and influence. But secondly, because the, the science has evolved since this set of ideas ha- uh, was forged and you know, essentially as a scientific idea, this testosterone rex is extinct. So it just seemed like a, a perfect kind of um, mm. title for it. Though I have to say I did tell it to somebody 
uh, who will remain nameless, and they, they said, oh, I know what that book's about then. Uh, and I said, oh, what's that? And he said, well, it's about, it's trying to emasculate men, it's trying to bring men down. Because <laughs> that's what you feminists do, isn't it? So, uh, so it was a yeah. man who said that. It was a man, yeah. 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 But I that's mean, not I'm sure what, that we're really not, surprised that that's it was not, a man. That's not what the book <laughs> um, so I thought it was uh, interesting that you said that it's extinct, but I mean it isn't, is it? Right, science, from a scientific <laughs> perspective, it's extinct. But yeah, I mean I think there are, there are a range of views in society about uh, what the differences between the sexes are, why they exist, and to what extent they actually matter in terms of you know the social the social order. But I certainly think that, you know, often when we have debates about whether it's how toys are marketed, whether it's about what, what the role or value of women is in senior levels of organisations, or, you know, you know, why we don't have as many female politicians as male politicians, you know, often this is a story that, you know, that comes up to say, well, hmm. this is why gender-neutral marketing is pointless. This is why we were never really, it's never really realistic to expect equality in the boardroom, and so on and so forth. So... You know, it's as a scientific story. I think it's it's quite powerful, and it, it offers a a kind of explanation for yeah. the the status quo. But why do you think? I mean, if you, if it is extinct amongst scientists, why is it so sticky? Why do people keep pushing it? Well, I think there's actually you know there's also well, scientists a rate, there's, in a way keep pushing it. Like right. books are published by scientists. Well, there's there's a range <laughs> of views within the scientific community as well and what I really wanted to do in this book was to look at this 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 scientific story from a range of different perspectives so I went back to you know back into the mists of evolutionary time so I was looking at the scientific changes within evolutionary biology which aren't necessarily always caught up on within you know people working in psychology or economics for instance mm -hmm. uh, through to new understandings how science understand the, the scientific understanding of um, sex influences in the brain, how that's changed since the last century, onto new <laughs> understandings of um, the complexity of relationships between hormones like testosterone and behaviour. And so I think in each scientific field, there are these really sort of interesting and important scientific advances, but they're not necessarily known mm. fully by people working in slightly different mm areas are working in different disciplines so you can have a discipline that's sometimes even implicitly just working from a sort of a bunch of old scientific mm. assumptions without necessarily realizing it which is the worst offender <laughs> <laughs> which discipline oh right um oh yeah, yeah i didn't sure. know yeah, once <laughs> to go down that route we're very happy to hear <laughs> yeah so I, th I think there's been um some interesting examples in behavioral economics where, I, I don't know, are there any economists in the <laughs> audience? <laughs> so how how um, openly I can speak. You know, so for example, you'll, you'll have um, academic studies or academic papers in, in economics talking about the precise percentage of uh, a gender gap in, in financial risk-taking that is due to nature, based on differences in digit ratio, which is supposed to be a measure of um, exposure to testosterone in utero. The rest of the scientific community has sort of moved away from the idea that you can sort of conceive of nature and nurture as mm. being sort of separate things that you can put a, um, a, a, a percentage on um, when you're talking about something that happened in utero and then measuring something, you know, 30, 30 odd years 
later. So I think that's, you know, those kinds of statements which seem to imply that there will always be a sort of 30% gender gap in financial risk-taking because, you know, prenatal exposure to testosterone mm -hmm. is, is not going to change, you know, is not, not necessarily very, very helpful. So basically, we need to make sure that all the economists read your book. That's, yeah. that's the plan. No, okay, be good. great. Yeah. Since you brought up risk, and we're going to jump ahead to the risk yeah. questions. The risk chapter is my favourite chapter. It's brilliant. Uh, Cordelia basically talks about, well, a number of things, but I think I would be right in summing it up by saying that you question what we conceive of as risky behaviour and say that that's culturally specific. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I think, I think risk-taking is like another, is another area where there have been, within psychology this time, uh, and also economics, um, there has been a, a sort of changing conceptualisation of the very concept of risk-taking. So previously, the idea was that risk-taking was this very, it was like a personality trait. So you, were, you know, we had risk-takers and we had people who were risk-averse and people in the middle. And the questionnaires that were used to assess risk-taking would take kind of risky scenarios, you know, how likely would you be to, you know, agree to this operation that has such and such chance of success but such and such chance of death uh, how likely would you be to buy this kind of stock with you know this risk return ratio how likely would you be to jump out of a plane and so on and so forth and the idea you add up all the scores and then you, you get your to what extent you're a risk taker or not but it turns out people are quite idiosyncratic in the kinds of risks that they're willing to take so people who are physically risk-taking, for example, are no more likely than someone who is sort of very physically risk-averse to be financially risk-taking, say. This really complicates the story for, um, for a number of reasons. So one is that once we stop seeing people as being either risk-takers or not risk-takers, then explanations of sort of this intuitively appealing idea that testosterone makes people be a risk-taker don't really work anymore because what kind of risk taker do you expect someone with high testosterone to be? Mm. Do you expect them to be a financial risk taker or do you expect them to be a physical risk taker, for example? But it also revealed the economists who sort of identify this specificity, the idiosyncrasies of the way that people take risk, thought, well, why, what is it? What makes someone willing to take one kind of risk but not another kind of risk? And they found it's to do with not risk attitude per se because most people are a little bit, no, not many people actually like risk for its own sake is always to do with what's your perception mm -hmm. of the likely benefits and the likely costs. In fact, women are the same. So men and women are both generally a little bit negative in their attitude towards risk, but where the benefits and the risks are perceived to be equal, they're equally likely to take a risk. Mm -hmm. And that immediately starts to make us have to think quite carefully about what are the risks and benefits for men and women in what seem from the outside to be very similar kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. One classic example is casual sex. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a risky activity, but what are the likely benefits? What are the likely risks? Well, if you're female, then you've got a reputational risk, from thanks to the double standard. I'm sure I don't need to use the word. You'll know all, all the many words I could choose <laughs> that we use to describe women who, um, you know, just don't chaste, chastely have sex only in marriage. There's more of a physical risk, the risk of high risk of sexually transmitted disease, high risk of, well, you know, there is a risk of pregnancy. Uh, and um, at least based on North American student samples, there's a much lower probability of actually getting sexual enjoyment out of the experience because uh, they're much less likely to have an orgasm. And orgasms are everything, but women are six times more likely to enjoy a casual hookup sexual encounter if they do have one. So that is a good stat. <laughs> <laughs> 
so the point is, when we, you know, men and women are making these decisions about whether to have casual sex, you know, it's a completely different scenario for the man. He's going to get full sexual relief. He's going to his status is going to be enhanced. So it's just it's just a different risk taking context. There is this amazing study that you mention. When, when were these done? The Russell Clark and Elaine Hatfield, moderately attractive young male and female decoys, were positioned around a college campus. The decoys were instructed to approach people of the other sex and initiate a conversation by saying, I have been noticing you around campus. I find you to be very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> this abrupt opener was followed with one of three propositions. Would you go out with me tonight? Would you come over to my apartment tonight? Or would you go to bed with me tonight? Men and women were equally likely to agree to a date, about 50%, but although 69% of men agreed to visit the women's apartment, and even more men agreed to go to bed with her, almost no women expressed interest in visiting a strange man's apartment, <laughs> and precisely zero consented to sex. I mean, women are all frigid, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so first of all, when was that study done? And can you talk a bit about what these amazing Russell and Elaine um, thought the conclusions of the study were. Yeah, so as I recall, I think those studies were done in the 80s, but they have been done again more recently with right. sort of similar kinds of findings. Yeah, look, I have to say the, the authors themselves did refer to the fact that, you know, for women, they did recognise the fact that, it's, oh, you know, good. there's a there's an, there's a certainly an element of danger, sort of like, oh, a stalker, how nice, let's, uh, <laughs> let's go back to your apartment. But, you know, I think, I think it, this study is often cited by others in particular as right. indicating... Um, sort of women's, you know, women, uh, men's sort of intense promiscuity, even though, of course, the experiment then stopped, so we don't know, you know, what, what actually would have happened and how serious the men were in their responses. So you, what, you think that when they got to the women's apartment, they'd have been like, actually, I'm not that kind of guy. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just wondering. I don't know. I, I, sorry, I don't know. Well, maybe the people, men here, would say, you know, if some woman came up to you and said, would you like to come back to my apartment and have sex with me? You might not take it very seriously, right? Straw poll. Yeah. Guys? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? But, um, yeah, but uh, it's other studies that have looked at uh, a sort of situation where women would be, um, you know, less feeling that they were putting themselves into intense danger. So, you know, if it was just a friend that you wanted to have sex with or a celebrity, then you actually see very similar patterns of mm. interest in that in that in casual casual sex. So I'd just like to talk a bit now about your second chapter, I think it is, called One Hundred Babies question mark. Um, yeah, tell me about what's behind that. What's what's this hundred babies thing? Well so the idea of the, the idea of male promiscuity comes from you know a very familiar idea from evolutionary biology, which is that sperm are cheap and eggs are expensive, and pregnancy, as anyone who's been pregnant knows, is extremely expensive and time-consuming and um, and tiring. And so the idea is that uh, men have evolved to be promiscuous, and women have generally evolved not to be so promiscuous, apart from sort of occasional opportunistic good genes grabs. Because, you know, a man can go out and as this sort of, um, particular evolutionary psychologist puts it, he could have indiscriminately have sex with 100 women and produce 100 babies as a consequence of that endeavour, whereas uh, a monogamous man would only produce one baby in the same period of time. Uh, and the problem with this is it really um, it overlooks the fact that we are really not like animals 
in terms of reproduction in a really important way. So in many animals, sort of, you know, mammals, uh, rats and cats and so on, sexual activity is really tightly controlled through hormones. And so things are coordinated through hormones that males and females are having sex at a time when it's actually going to have a really high chance of fertilisation and reproduction. When you get to primates, for instance, things aren't so tightly under hormonal control. And when we come to humans, there isn't actually a strong pattern of sexual activity being coordinated with, um, with the sort of business period of the menstrual cycle. So there's some indications that it might be slightly more likely, but it's not a very powerful effect. We have a huge amount of sexual activity that cannot lead, uh, will not lead, it's very unlikely to actually lead to fertilisation and pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have two men having sex, they're not going to get pregnant. When you have two women having sex, they're not going to get pregnant, so on and so forth. We have all, and the kinds of sexual activity that one engages in can't always lead to pregnancy, whatever your mother or um, uh, the, the, nuns at the nuns at the church might say. Um, so the point is, is that there's a very, from a single sexual encounter, there's actually a very low probability of fertilization and then um, pregnancy and, uh, you know, full pregnancy, birth, and so on and so forth. So ranging between, depending on the period of the menstrual struggle, from about 0% to 9%, so on average about 3% of the time. And so if you work out the actual probability of a man having sex with 100 different women and producing 100 children, it's, you know, it's beyond minuscule. Uh, Even if you laugh at the fact that the man somehow managed to zone in on women who are in in the sort of most fertile period of their zone, they're still substantially more likely to be hit by a meteorite than to produce 100 women. Um, And so I think what the point is, is that although we have these ideas about, you know, there should be this huge drive for men to be promiscuous because of all the reproductive opportunities that they could have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, there there is certainly truth to that so you know in particular kinds of circumstances if you have polygamy for example yes a man can produce many more children than a woman in a lifetime but it has to be within a sort of particular set of circumstances and it's actually really it's really hard work I mean uh, you have to you have to find a woman you have to be better than the other guy who's trying to do the same thing you have to have sex with her and then you have to find another woman and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and you don't have the tinder app because you're back in the ancestral yeah. past so you know it's quite hard work and all the time that you're doing this you also have to be maintaining your status as you know the alpha male that the the female will want yeah. to drop her knickers for so hard work you know monogamy doesn't seem quite so bad when you uh put it in that put it in that context that's a really good point about being able to both attract and have sex with a woman and also do all the stuff you have to do to be the alpha male. I actually don't think it would... I think it would not be possible. That's my conclusion. Well, that's why you need a, that's why you need a harem. But, you know, th- those, those are... I'm not recommending that, but... Um, but, you know, that's a particular time in... You know, there have been harems, but there are also, you know, I think in, in the kind of hunter-gatherer societies in which supposedly we did most of our um, evolving and adapting, that was not a not, that was not a feature of those kinds of societies. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting point that you've just made there about when we did most of our evolving. Presumably that we didn't just stop evolving at that point, and I just find it very weird how insistent the people who propose this kind of theory are that we never evolved beyond really apes or cavemen why are these people so keen to just sort of despite the fact that we are all human beings and it's very clear that there's more to us than just base animal instinct why they're so keen to strip all the humanity away 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think in fairness, I think there's no evolutionary psychologist who doesn't acknowledge, um, you know, a powerful impact of culture and society on, uh, on, on the way people behave and on sex differences. And, and in fairness, quite a lot of their research is trying to look at the kind of societal factors or ecological factors that do influence uh, the patterns of sex differences in society. But I think at core, the, I, I think what's missing from these kinds of accounts is um, w when it comes to sex differences, which is um, you know where I've I suppose you know looked most closely at these sorts of things, is the idea that when it comes to sex differences, there is something something that is biologically it's so important for reproductive success to have sort of male patterns of behaviour and female patterns of behaviour, that it must be locked into our sex-linked biology, so into the sex chromosomes and through that, through the sex hormones. And this is a really... And then, and then what happens is that the cultural influences kind of, you know, we have some plasticity and we're sort of shaped by these cultural influences, but generally in any kind of environment you're going to see the same kinds of patterns of behaviour, sort of cross-cultural, universal, timeless patterns of sex differences. And I think what this, you know, intuitively this makes a lot of sense, but what it overlooks is a kind of change in evolutionary biology, which is a recognition that even adaptive behaviours and behaviours that are inherited generation after generation um, are not necessarily inherited through genetic inheritance. So animals inherit an entire developmental system, um, which can be quite stable from generation to generation. So a particular kind of ecology or to always have a, a mother that will take care of you or you always have a sort of particular social group or social arrangement around. And of course we have our cultures that are sort of, you know, somewhat changeable but stable from uh, generation to generation. And what evolutionary biologists have recognised that even, even adaptive traits can be in an important sense dependent on these non-genetic forms of inheritance. So, for example, in rhesus monkeys, uh, you know, they have this ability to, um, sort of social abilities to reduce conflict. And nobody would doubt that that's an adaptive trait, but it actually mm. depends on uh, early social experiences. And that's not a really, a, that's not a contra controversial idea in evolutionary biology, that natural selection is actually quite a frugal process. Mm -hmm. And if you can get a sort of developmental input, you know, reliably produce generation after generation, why would you waste your sort of precious genes building that in. Mm -hmm. And the, I think what's, what's been missing is a recognition of that actually, even when it comes to sex-linked behaviours, that extra genetic developmental resources can be really important too. And a really st striking example of this is um, examples of sexual imprinting. So we think that sexual behaviour is so important for reproductive success that it must be locked into the genes. But what scientists have found is, for example, if you take a baby lamb and you cross-foster it with a nanny goat mother and do the same with the baby goat, a kid, mm -hmm. and that gets reared by a ewe, and what you find is those males will actually grow up to have a sexual preference for females of their foster mum's species. Now, having sex with the right species is really important <laughs> for reproductive success, but what's happening here is that it's actually this really critical, like very unexceptional, easily overlooked aspect of this, these animals, you know, developmental system mm. as it's called. You know, every, if you're going to survive, you're going to have a mum. Um, that's actually playing a critical role in the development of that adaptive trait. Mm. So I think 
that, that's a, I think that's a really important concept from evolutionary biology that has yet, is just starting to penetrate its way into the scientific understanding of mm. how sex differences develop, this idea that sex doesn't do it all itself through its genetic and biological components, but that it's actually able to recruit other parts of the developmental system mm. to kind of outsource some of its developmental work. And of course, things like um, testosterone have physical effects on the body. And then other animals or other individuals around respond to the physical differences that that have. And you know, that, you know you're all thinking, oh, she's talking about gender socialization. And that's a very human thing. But actually, even in, even in non-human animals, you know, there are indirect effects of testosterone on um, you know, secondary sexual characteristics or on smell or size that actually influence the behavior of mm. others. So this is sort of indirect effect. And in humans, we actually, you know, we have this very complex culture, which is strongly gendered in, you know, every aspect of it. It would be kind of peculiar if this was just a sort of incidental thing that created kind of random variation rather than being a core part of mm. how sex got its developmental work done. And of course, we have the unlimited capacity to change those cultures, mm. should we want to. Um, well, we'll come back to that. But <laughs> can you give an example of uh, in an animal where the testosterone has had that impact? Yeah. So one example is the um, the swordfish. So the increase in testosterone at sexual maturity creates the sword that the female finds attractive, and um, and then that in turn sort of triggers a whole process of of behaviour. So that's one indirect effect. Another one is a really fascinating study, and it was really it was quite. Prescient. It was a psychobiologist called Celia Moore, and she she found that so rat mothers lick the anal genital regions of their baby rats, and what she noticed is that uh, it turns out the females, the mothers, are attracted to the greater, the higher levels of testosterone in the urine of male pups than female pups, and so they lick the that region of the males male pups more intensively than they do. The females, hmm. and it turned out that this extra licking actually contributed to the sexual differentiation of the brains of males and females. So it was part of making the brains of males and females uh, diverge, and that brain difference in turn was related to male sexual behaviour. Hmm. So this is an example again, and it's really you know, sort of poignant. Look, I was looking back at this the particular scientific article recently. Talking, and she's sort of making this comment. This is a really amazing. I mean, she put it modestly, but you know, this is a really amazing finding because what it's showing is this this kind of very natural, unexceptional part of the rat's external environment is mm. actually playing a role in their sexual development, the development of their sexual behaviour. And this was work done in the 1980s, and it's sort of more or less ignored for 20 years. And I think right. these ideas are now starting to catch catch on. But this is an example of how. A, a hormonal aspect of sex, which is the testosterone level, influences, has an effect on mm. the mother's behavior that then contributes to male sexual behavior. And male sexual behavior, that's really basic. That's like the, that's like the, the core business of um, mm. sexual selection, right? But it's the mother that's playing this vital, vital role in it. So, I mean, it's a slight sort of 
head fucking away. It's kind of like, <laughs> well, it's, it, it makes me think a little bit of. She should have said sorry, that. And then, she said and then that. her paper would have got well, more exactly. attention. I was going to say, why, why did it get ignored? Because she didn't say it's a head fuck. No, but it makes me think of like Back to the Future and time travel. Does anyone else? Do you get what I mean? Like that if it weren't for the mother doing the licking, then the guy wouldn't have the sex desires, but the guy had to have the sex desires for the woman to have the baby and just, yeah, okay. No, <laughs> that's just me. Um, so the book actually opens with some really, uh, a chapter on some really ex interesting examples of um, how many different animals kind of defy this testosterone rex kind of idea. Which was your favorite animal, the most ridiculous <laughs> animal that you came across in that research? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I do like the um, the hedge sparrows. So this was um, there's a an animal behaviourist at Cambridge University, Nick Davies, and he describes um, the the hedge sparrow. And what what he found is that depending on factors like the size of the female's territory and the sort of fighting ability of the males and females, they can have all different kinds of sort of weird sexual setup so they can have they can have monogamous relationships they can have one male and two females they can have two male two females and one male and they can even have two males and two females in a kind of you know no questions asked kind of uh, arrangement so you know a really um, sort of fluid and adaptable kind of um, uh, kind of way of solving the problem of reproduction and this is not to say that this sort of this basic idea of males investing less than females isn't an important principle in evolutionary biology because you know it still is uh, a critical factor and it does explain the dynamics of a number of different species. But it's also the case that what a number of ex sort of exceptions to this are showing is that animals are able to behave in quite adaptable ways in response to their social situation or their ecological situation. So, for example, there's a species of uh, field cricket where normally the females are the competitive ones and that's because the males actually invest quite a lot by bringing these sort of nutritious sperm packets and so the females <laughs> compete for the males uh, but then it turns out if there's a lot of pollen in the environment or the scientist sort of intervenes by giving them sort of extra food they're like oh well, I don't need his sperm packet anymore <laughs> so I'm gonna sit back and let them come to me and you know this is an example of how whatever sex is doing in the brains of these field crickets mm. it's not doing it's it's creating adaptive plasticity and when people think about plasticity they often think about in a kind of blank slate kind of way so you just have this kind of blank slate that the environment sort of passively uh, imprints itself on in a way that's sort of arbitrary and this is a different idea this is the idea of adaptive plasticity the idea that there is a plasticity, a response to the environment that serves an adaptive purpose that is making uh, things work better for the particular animal. And I think what's really fascinating is the idea of uh, sex, the genetic and hormonal components of sex, actually not being this sort of fixed, stable influence, but actually being able to furnish adaptive plasticity. So, you know, if you talk about things turning head over heels, you know, we, we, we're used to thinking of sex as providing the sort of stability of sex-linked behavior mm -hmm. and as of the environment as providing the kind of plasticity or variation yeah. and you know there are examples where you actually have the, the reverse you've got this sort of sex-linked biology furnishing adaptive plasticity and you've got the environmental factors that get inherited year after year providing the stability so you know in cases of things actually being completely the other way around to how we yeah. how we normally assume
That feels like a really great link to gendered toys, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, would you go so far as to say that, there, that one day we might discover that gendered toys are creating sex? <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I, do, I, do, I, do, I do love that cartoon where it says, you know, how to tell if it's a boy toy or a girl toy. It says, if this, uh, does, it, does it involve genitals? Yes, this is not a toy for children. Does it not involve genitals? It doesn't matter, let them play with what they want or something like that. Yeah. Put, put a bit more. Uh, I've seen that cartoon. Yeah. I was uh, delighted to see you quoted my good friend James Dellingpole uh, <laughs> on gendered toys. <laughs> What, what page is James Dellingpole? He's page 175. Mm. Right. Yes, so he's very angry about the idea of gender-neutral toys. You'll be surprised to know. Cordelia very kindly calls him a journalist and says <laughs> <laughs> that a, toys business jo a toy business's job is to make profit, not engage in social engineering. And uh, he goes on. Then gender-neutral marketing is futile, he says, because those XX and XY chromosomes will out in the end. Um, James Dellingpole, who once claimed that I would be the downfall of Western civilization. <laughs> yeah, why is he so angry? If he's so convinced, I mean, I'm not asking you to get into James Dellingpole's head. Don't worry, I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> but if he's so convinced, and, and other people like him are so convinced that this gender-neutral toy marketing is useless because you know, XX will out. What, yeah, why are, they so, why are they so against it? What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's this really strange contradiction in, you know, it's always the people who say, why don't we just present toys in a more neutral way? That's social engineering. <laughs> but presenting toys as girl toys and boy toys with very clear colour coding that even, you know, pre-literate children can understand, that's just letting things take their natural course. <laughs> that's not social engineering at all. But yeah, I do think it's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, if it is such a powerful uh, link to sex, what kind of toys you're interested in playing it with, then why would we need to reinforce it so rigorously? And I think the, arg the kind of arguments that come up are that it's easier for parents. Like if you're a harried parent, then if you've got a daughter to buy a present for, then you just need to follow the pink. And if you've mm. got a son to buy for, then you just need to follow the sort of black, scary, you know, Wrestling bears. Great, yeah. yeah. Wrestling bears. That's uh, what boys bears. do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's all about parental inconvenience to have gender neutral parenting. Yeah, look, I think, I think the, the reason that toys, the kinds of toys that children play with, is such a sort of focal point for debates is because, you know, if we, if we think that girls and boys are, you know, naturally drawn to very different kinds of toys then that makes, you know, adult society look much more fair. It's mm. just the natural outcome of the fact that girls like to play with dolls and tea sets and makeup sets and boys like to play with trucks and action figures and, and things like that. And, you know, so we get, from, we get from one to the other and we don't need to feel bad that it's um, something to do with gender socialisation. Mm. Um, I remember reading in The Delusion of Gender... I think I remember reading this, that you said that you always have people come up to you when you said you're writing this book and say, oh, but like my little Timmy always just really liked trucks and you know, my little Sally just wanted to put the truck to bed. Um, I just wondered if that's something that you still come across, you still get that oh, kind people of don't dare out. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, good, good. No, I'm kidding, they still do that. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a very common um, phenomenon. I mean, it was interesting because I remember I, I wrote about it in the context of Larry Summers, who, you know, in his talk about why there were f fewer women in sort of top scientific, senior scientific roles in the university, said that, you know, that we just had to recognize that there were probably innate differences. And he cited the example of his children and being given a truck and then... Um, I think it was, his, I guess it was his daughters and sort of putting a, a duvet on them and putting them to bed. And it was interesting because I, you know, I, my book, I sent it, my book to a lot of academics to mm. read, to get um, feedback and, and so on. And um, a number of academics who had boys said, oh, my son did that too. And actually my, my boys did that kind of thing too. So it wasn't... Put I the think truck that, to bed? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, color the bit, you know, so there were a number of sons doing this too. And I think the moral of that story is probably better to run an experiment before you start, <laughs> uh, you know, than, you know, drawing from a sample of one or two. But anyway, yeah, and I think, I but think like Sarah, yeah. Larry Summers, poor guy, he can't do science because he's a man and that's probably why he did the anecdote instead of the, <laughs> instead of the data, like give him a break. Yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, this is another example of, I think, a way that um, the scientific understandings have changed in this time in sort of gender development and psychology of away from this idea that gender socialization is something that's sort of imposed on the child by the parents and caregivers and societies and recognizing that children are actually, particularly once they reach about two to three years of age and their gender identity kicks in, they've already learned that gender is a really important social division in society because we emphasize it through the names people have, the way that they dress, through their hair and their clothing, um, referring, especially in sort of young childhood, we, you know, we divide people by boys and girls, we sort of divide them up that way, toilets are segregated, uh, pronouns emphasise, you know, whether someone's male or female, and then they also get a huge amount of information about what goes with being female, what kind mm -hmm. of qualities go with being female, female, male, and so of course once they reach the age where they know which side of this very important social divide they belong, they want to sort of, they're drawn to things that are for them, mm -hmm. and studies show that when you you know, you can present a toy, um, you can either have a girl playing with a toy or a boy playing with a toy, and that will influence to what extent other children want to play with it. So yeah. if it's being presented by a, uh, someone of the same sex, then it'll be more appealing to you than if it's presented by play, being played with by someone of the other of the other sex. So it's a sort of active process. So there's a lot of frustration, there can be a lot of frustration amongst sort of feminist parents who uh, don't want their girls to be dressing up in pink princess mm. outfits in kindergarten every day because then they can't climb around and go on the monkey bars and things like that very easily. This is a recognition that it's not mean that there's a pink princess gene, as one person suggested, but um, that children, you know, they're actively, they're aware of gender, they're aware of their gender identity, and, and it's part of, you know, they want to know, they want to be part of their own tribe, and that's perfectly understandable. Mm. Um, you know, we all have in-group, out-group, dynamics about what we do and, mm. and what we like. We shouldn't think children would be, would be any different. Do you feel uh, hopeful about the downfall of Western civilization? Yeah, yeah, actually, actually <laughs> I'm doing a great job there, <laughs> Thanks. Well, well, I'm just right. sort of thinking, you know, you've written this amazing book and <clears throat> then other people like, um, I can't remember his name, something Willpole brings out a book saying the complete opposite, using studies you debunked in your uh, Dunes of Gender book um, and then you've written this book and inevitably there's going to be some man in about 10 years who uses studies that you've debunked in this book and uh, you know do you feel that we're progressing at all in terms of 
understanding what the science is actually like rather than what we would like it to be in a stereotypical way? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think so. I feel, I feel positive about the... Um, I feel positive about it. I mean, I, I think one thing that was interesting to me in, in researching and writing this book um, was, uh, and it, you know, it just sort of, it wasn't intention to make a point of it, but it kind of just shimmered out through the writing, is that how often it was female scientists who were, you know, they're practicing scientists working in a particular area, and how often it was their insights that they were asking, they were questioning assumption, long-held assumptions, they were asking new kinds of questions that were generating new kinds of data and that were changing, helping to change scientific understanding. I mean, mm -hmm. the classic example of this was um, Sarah Hardy, who was the first person who actually was able to recognize female promiscuity uh, in the animal world and sort of say, okay, well, what's, what's going on here? She was the one who highlighted the importance, you know, actually maybe rank and resources matter for female reproductive sex, uh, success too. And there's now this sort of flourishing... Um, research endeavour looking at female competition and its importance for reproductive yeah. success. Same in the in the realm of, of neuroscience. So Daphne Joel, lots, lots of arguing about well, you know, how reliable are sex differences in the brain? You know, how big are they? What do they actually mean in terms of behaviour? What's their origins? Are they to do with you know biological origins? Are they social origins? And she asked a different question. She asked, how how do these sex differences in behaviour add up? Do they add up in a consistent way mm. to create something we can call male brains and female brains or do they do people have a sort of mix of qualities she was asking a different kind of question mm. the kind of research that um sari van anders is doing uh that's looking at how sort of gendered experiences influence testosterone levels so bringing this kind of um uh, you know whether you want to call it you know your own experience in the world or in some cases explicitly having a sort of background in in feminist thinking mm. um, or you know an understanding of what gender psychology from a sort of gender perspective has looked at but actually bringing that into scientific practice and having an influential effect on the kinds of um, data that are being generated the kinds of questions that are being asked and you know it's science doesn't you know it's, it's sort of slow progress mm. and, and but that's same for for all all mm. fields I think so, so um, particular interest of mine the way in which the research that gets done so much depends on who's doing it and what questions they choose to ask which is obviously something you just touched on there and how much of science is driven by sort of uh, because it's been <coughs> so historically done by men um, the questions that they ask are perhaps different from the questions that women might ask and I just wondered to what extent you think that that is still a problem in neuroscience, either because it's still happening or because of the wealth of knowledge that has been created so far? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think one thing I'll, think I'll say is there's been a push, uh, recently a successful push for the inclusion of both sexes in, um, uh, both sexes in sort of animal research doing basic neuroscience and clinical neuroscience. We sort of move away from the idea of using the male body and the male brain as the um, absolute norm to which you know the female's the kind of messy hormonal version mm. of it um, that then um, you could just extrapolate from the, the, the male to, to humans mm -hmm. um, and you know there have been people who've been working hard to, to make that happen and it's and, and it is happening and I think that's a I certainly think that's a positive thing mm. while with the qualifier that as long as we're doing the comparisons of sex differences in a way that is recognizes the complexities of doing that kind of research so some of my uh, academic work has been around sort of trying to contribute to that kind of uh, recommendations for doing that kind of research if it's going to increase in volume. 
but yeah, I do think it's a, I do think it's an interesting um, question. I mean, one one thing is around you know, this idea of what comes to mind when you think about risks. Mm. Um, what you know tends to be sort of male typical risks, and there's sort of there's a lot of interest in trying to link testosterone to scores on risk-taking questionnaires. But research that I've been doing with some uh, colleagues at Exeter University and my student back in the, um, back in Australia. Um, has been showing that you know you can actually if you just make the effort to try and think of more gender neutral or female typical kinds of risk taking uh, then you can actually obliterate sex differences on a risk taking questionnaire so if you're trying to link risk taking with testosterone level you're going to have to recognize that what you count as risk taking is very much colored by what yeah. you think of as a form of a form of risk so like give me some examples of some more you know typically feminine risks uh, so the kinds of things we did was, you know, rather than having, um, you know, putting a day salary on a, the outcome of a soccer match, we had something like putting a day salary on the outcome of um, the outcome of the Bachelor or some sort of, you know, which is not to try to stereotype women, but to, to yeah. sort of say, well, if you're not if you're not interested in soccer, you don't know much about soccer, then yeah. why would you want to put money on the outcome of a yeah. of a soccer match? Um, things, you know, I think things like writing a feminist blog. I think, you know. Some, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> some risky outcomes from that, mm. but you know, uh, benefits too. So, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that we. Uh, oh, you know, horse riding. So that's a kind of you know classic thing that girls like to do. It's actually really risky. And but one thing that we notice when we put together our, we um, it's very hard to match activities for a kind of objective risk because risk risk is so much wrapped in and well, what you know, what's the effect for your reputation, your mm. self concept, and so on. Um, but in as much as we were able to match sort of more feminine and more masculine forms of risk-taking for objective risks, these were physical and financial risks, it was really interesting because we actually found that people perceived the male activities to be riskier uh, than the female ones, even though we'd done the best that we could to, mm. to match them for objective risk. So we even sort of perceived things that mm. if, if a man's doing it, it must be risky, and if a woman's doing it, then maybe it's not such a... That's risky really thing interesting. after all. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to have to ask my final question, even though I have loads more. So, final question, um, because I'm sure everyone here has their own. So, <coughs> I really, really enjoyed the end of the book. I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin it for you now. But Cordelia goes all radical, and she says, she, she suggests that maybe it's time to be less polite and more disruptive, like the first and second wave feminists. They weren't always popular, it's true, but look at what they achieved by not asking nicely. I think I was just, when I wrote that, I was just tired of panel discussions. <laughs> I don't what, know. Like this? <laughs> no, no, this is, you know, you know come, and, come, to our, come to our company and sit on a panel about gender oh, right. equality. It's like, no, just look at your gender gap and pay gap and fix that. You know. yeah. um, well, you're mm. kind of ruining my question here. Sorry, but. sorry. <laughs> what would you tell everyone here as an idea for them to take away and start? doing deeds not words well yeah i'm tempted to say everyone here should buy a copy of the book for themselves <laughs> and then another copy for someone who's a little bit sexist in their, like an economist in their life no no oh, i <laughs> i i there's an economist in my life who i love so i i have, I have fondness for economists as a group but i think they need to look at other um disciplines in, in doing their research a little bit more but um yeah look i think i i tend to I, I remember um, giving a, a talk at a, um, a symposium for women in management. This was when in my life as part of the business school, and I, I gave this talk that was all about 
you know, debunking some of the science behind the, behind the idea of, you know, women being like this and men being like that. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, you know, you're, you're in a business school, Cordelia, so you really ought to be giving practical suggestions to managers. And I said, no, I just, I just like to inspire people with the possibility <laughs> that comes from, uh, you know, a debunking of these sort of scientific, scientific stories that tell us that, you know, gender equality is going against nature. Um, I think it really just depends on... Um, who you are and, and, and what, what, do you, what you can do in your particular path of life. I think it's, it's not, there's no prescriptions for one, one, particular, uh, one particular person because, you know, somebody's going to be a CEO and other person uh, is, is going to be an intern or, or um, something like that. So it's a bit hard to um, give really a single, you were single piece of advice. I recommend testicle key rings for everyone. But, you know, no, I was, against, I was, against, I was against the testicle key rings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, thanks very much. Really interesting. I'm interested in um, uh, mental health. That's my profession. And how difficult it um, is when we've got such uh, starkling different uh, statistics. On, <coughs> so uh, we've got massive um, overprescription of antidepressants for women. And we've got massive um, under sort of, uh, un, you know, sort of underprescription, if you like, of sort of depression in men. So we have 78% of people who uh, commit suicide are men. And we have... You know, huge. So, how do we think about that in terms of if we haven't, if we, if it's not related to testosterone and, and society, it's sort of testosterone and oxytocin. How do you sort of think about that, those startling differences in in our behaviour and our, our mental health? Um, yeah, I think I think that's a good question. So, I think you know, one of the reasons that I'm sometimes characterised as being anti-sex difference and anti-sex difference research, and that's certainly not the case. I just think it needs to be done well. You know, I think those sort of vulnerabilities, sex differences and vulnerabilities to certain kinds of pathologies or disorders of brain and mind are something that, you know, we need to look at uh, sex influences um, as a way to try and understand, while at the same time recognising that also men and women are operating, you know, are likely in a systematic way to be having very different kinds of experiences, vulnerabilities... Uh, you know, norms around how appropriate it is to seek help and show vulnerability and so on and so forth. You know, I think, I think it's a... I don't have an idea whether I'm not a mental health professional, but I suppose that would be my answer to you. I mean, I don't, I don't see... You know, as long as we're looking at both aspects of it, and, of course, biology and um, environment are always interacting too, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what the answer will be, but I, I see both parts as being a sort of key, key aspect of trying to, trying to understand that. I was wondering what your take on was um, of sort of young people uh, staying at home for longer um, or returning back to home because they, they need to for financial reasons or whatever. Do you think that that's having a regressive effect on their formation of their own gender identities in modern society? And could it be a challenge to sort of the kind of feminist vision that you have for the future in terms of people moving forward with... My feminist vision is my sons living with me forever and doing all the cooking and cleaning <laughs> in return for bed and board. Yeah, I, d I don't know. Um, it's certainly there's been a change in the kind of normative life progression, which is that, you know, you reach adulthood, you get, you get married, you leave home. Uh, you know, things, things are certainly have changed in quite a substantial way for various reasons to do, you know, with the cost of housing, cost of education, and people marrying later, and so on and so forth. 
Uh, I don't see any reason why that would, you know, it's just a different kind of um, uh, journey of life um, and probably just a more varied one with more, more choice. Um, I, don't, I don't know why that would be a challenge to people's um, uh, gender, gender identity um, or would necessarily stand in the way of greater gender equality. I'm a scientist and uh, when I read, read Delusions of Gender it was really empowering for me and I work in climate change where people, there aren't many women in the debate because as you say uh, men are rewarded for conflict and women aren't uh, penalised, they have a greater risk. And, and, I, and I remember thinking, and God I wish I'd read this you know, when I was, I wish I had some access to the inf this information a long time ago when I was a teenager or whatever. Have you got any plans for, um, for you know, presenting these things in Delusions for Gender and Testosterone Rex in a format that is accessible for essentially 11-year-old girls, right, at the point that they start to switch off from science, putting it into the educational system? Or do you know anyone who's doing really good work in that area of countering, you know, science is for, is for uh, men and, you know, is for boys, um, for empowering girls to think, well, that's why I'm being treated this way and actually it doesn't have to be that way? What do you think James Delingpole would think of that <laughs> idea? <laughs> I think... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the end of Western yeah, yeah, that would yeah. bring it on quickly, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I haven't, I haven't myself uh, thought about doing that. I mean, I, I think the, the sort of tireless gender toy marketing campaigners are, you know, uh, sort of part of that. You know, the science kits in the boys section and things like that. I mean, I think those are really quite important aspects of it. Um, I mean, I do speak at schools quite often, um, so you know you hope that that will trickle down through the through the you know through the t teachers and um, giving them s some information themselves. But yeah, I agree. It's really um, it is it is really important. Uh, and you know, there was a really interesting study. I don't know if it was ever published by Rebecca Bigler, and she it was a study where they you know we're trying to get at this sort of dropping off of interest in science among girls and they sort of tried a couple of interventions and one of them was explaining to the girls how female scientists through history had been discriminated against and you know prevented from participating and so on and so forth and that actually led to an increase in the girls interest in science because I think if you're a child um, you know and you look you kind of get a sense of oh look all the scientists in my books are male all the mathematicians are male you know when I look at in you know of course things are changing but you know there are certain patterns and and you, you know the natural inference is well you know this is just not something that I'm good at or for me without understanding the kind of many different forces that have come together to create that situation so um, yeah I think great uh, great idea um, I'm from the let toys be toys campaign um, oh. <laughs> I thought I should speak. Keep now. up the good work. Um, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I'd actually say it doesn't start at 11, it starts at birth. Um, mm. So we have lots of resources where we actually look at, yeah, as you said, oh, science good. kits or lesson plans that try and think about gender stereotyping a lot earlier. And we think you should be targeting boys as much as girls so that they're aware of those discrepancies. I did have one question, which mm -hmm. was. Partly through the campaign, partly as a parent of quite a small child, I still get a lot of the, um, oh, it's the testosterone surge, boys will be boys thing. When I say, oh, go and read Cordelia Fine, that's not very helpful on the school run. So <laughs> what, what sort of thing can you say that is 
maybe polite, maybe not, um, to those parents, because it, it usually is other parents who say, oh, well, you know, they're just boys. Well, yeah, <laughs> so, so my strategy would always be... Um, this is why people start running away when they saw me in the playground, but... Um, yeah, I'd say, interestingly, studies have shown <laughs> that when you give uh, children this age a range of uh, masculine, feminine and gender neutral toys to play with, you find a huge amount of overlap in what they will, they will actually play with. And uh, at least 30% of the time the boy will play with a girl toy more than a random thing. You know, so I will, I'll just, you know, I, I might also mention that, you know, there's a testosterone surge prenatally and then one post-birth, but then up to pubescence the testosterone levels are um, yeah, very similar in, in boys and girls. Um, hi, thank you both for your time. This is a really interesting talk. Um, when you were talking about um, adaptive plasticity, I think that was the term, um, you got me thinking about kind of linkages between sex, uh, sex differences, gender and sexuality. And I wondered to get your thought, I appreciate this might not be your area of expertise entirely, but the kind of popular culture narrative of born this way that surrounds LGBT people versus then the right wing, well, if it's, there's a gay gene, then that means it's an aberration and not natural. And I wondered how you thought those two kind of conflicting ideas, but on the same topic, like how those can be reconciled and what your thoughts around how that, I don't know, can be reconciled and how you can have that argument without giving in to the bigots. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Well, so it's it's not it's not my area. So, um, and I do as much as I can avoid answering area, um, things that aren't in my area. But I suppose one thing that um, I think you know the idea that we would only tolerate um, non-normative sexuality or identities, um, you know, so long as we can find a gene to pin it on. I mean, I just find that you know, regarding whatever the science actually says, I just find that intrinsically. Problematic. I don't think tolerance should be contingent on finding a gene or something in the brain or something like that. Um, I suppose that, that's, that's one way of uh, reconciling it. Um, I guess and, you know, and everything, everything develops, whether it's heterosexuality or homosexuality. It's all, it's all developed. Um, yeah, so I think that's my, um, that would be my response. I don't know why we'd be looking to science for... Tolerance. Thank you, Cordelia, for this really interesting talk, and thank you for your work generally. I kind of feel, in some ways, like your talk has actually got a slight air of quaintness about it in the current uh, political context that we're operating, because there's kind of been a suggestion, I think, all the way through the discussion, that there's a kind of consensus on what we mean by the words male and female and man and woman, and clearly there's quite um, a challenge to those meetings at the moment and we've seen recently where a number of very high profile women you know perhaps like yourself who have the ear of the media such as Jenny Murray, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie um, and recently Hadley Freeman in The Guardian have actually started to um, assert that maybe it actually does have a certain meaning if you're born with a female body um, and that others who are born with male bodies who are making claims to be women um, have a different experience and they've had quite a lot of um, response to their what once would have been quite uh, uncontroversial observations. So I was just thinking all the way through when you were referring to sex differences and these words like male and female, obviously 
those that language particularly for women to name our own bodies is really under some assault at the moment and I was thinking um I don't know kind of what some of those who were waging this assault on us would make of your book because the the probably uh, be putting lines through every page of it where you actually make some kind of association between having a penis and being male or having do you know what I mean yeah. having these sort of biological characteristics and being either male or female so I just wondered when you you know you sounded quite optimistic about the future of this kind of work you know this kind of feminist work um and kinds of work in this vein but I think we can't really afford to afford to look at that without also acknowledging that there is a huge assault on women's name of, naming of our bodies and, you know, the kind of work that you're doing. So I just wonder, and, you know, the person here who's talking about let toys be toys, like there are NGOs going into schools now basically with the suggestion that actually if a girl is attracted to certain toys or certain activities, well, we should be on the lookout to identify certain children as being transgender. And, you know, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think... I just really wanted to bring that in the room because I think yeah. it's a bit of an absence if we don't mention it, and I just wondered what your response was to that. Yeah, um, uh, I think my response is to probably keep quiet. Um, <laughs> one thing I haven't, and I've never really looked at in my work, is the question of, um, and I appreciate this doesn't sort of capture all the points that you make, but it doesn't really capture gender identity. Um, so I don't have expertise in gendered identity how it, and how whatever form of it develop so feeling that there's already enough people speaking on the topic who don't know what they uh, don't really know what they're talking about and I don't want to be another one of these people <laughs> sort of adding adding to the long list so it's something I want to sort of think about quite carefully before commenting on but you know um, I suppose one thing I would say is that you know it's important to sort of distinguish between you know some some kinds of activities uh, or Interest can be very powerful forms of gender expression rather than a sort of, um, you know, it's a way of expressing your gender identity rather than being sort of, sort of some innate aspect of being male or being female. I think that's something that sometimes might get lost in mm -hmm. some of these conversations. I think that's all I'd really say on that. Yeah, but thank you. Um, there was a question there, I think. No? Oh, have you seen someone? Okay, fine. I was... I was actually going to come back to the person who was asking about born or born or made and make some comments about about that because that's a debate which is a very old debate <coughs> and it's it's actually a very cultural cultural debate because in the American context where equality has been established in constitutionally as about innate characteristics at the time when people were starting to talk about um, sexuality being um, not inborn but constructed, um, the Americans particularly, but some British people as well, were saying, no, no, we're born that way. And that was because that was how to win the argument politically. It was nothing to do with science. It was absolutely about winning a particular political argument at a particular time, to the extent that when Mary McIntosh published her first article about uh, sexuality, sexual orientation, if you like, as a constructed characteristic, she deliberately published it in a very, very 
obscure academic journal, well before Foucault and all his stuff, because she did not want to upset the debate at a time when the decriminalization of male homosexuality was on the political agenda. So these were political debates. They were never, ever scientific debates. And then they became scientific debates when people like Simon LeVay started to find the mm, homosexual the gay, yeah. brain, but he could never, you know, nobody ever found the lesbian brain. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, uh, and anyway, I'll stop mm. there. But I think it's important to recognise Yeah, thank you that. for that. Yeah. How much time do we have? I completely appreciate you don't want to be drawn on, on this topic. <laughs> but actually, you said something quite interesting, which was, so you said but by two to three, children are already playing in gendered ways, but because they have seen, you know, they want to be part of a tribe, so they're, always, they're already sort of being um, inducted into, into sexed ways of playing and because of the way what's being presented to them. So in one sense, I think you are, you are being, you will be pulled into the debate because you could say, because I completely agree with you, you know, children will, will be drawn to what, you know, they're led by example. And you're, you're saying that when gender neutral toys are presented, you said there's a 30% overlap or something. Oh, this is but, boy toys and girl toys. Yeah. yeah. So mm. the problem is, is that um, your account there could support some idea of innate gender identity because then we'd be saying, so what about those boys who, who, who appear not to want to be part of the tribe, you know, even when they're in incredibly gender-conforming classes where boys all behave in a particular way and girls all seem to behave in a particular way, and then you have an idiosyncratic gender-non-conforming boy or an idiosyncratic gender-non-conforming girl, because I'm sure you would refute the idea of innate gender identity... Well, but, say, I've, it's not something I've, I've really... I've always looked... So in Delusions of Gender, I was mm. talking about empathising and this idea of understanding the world or systemising. This book's really about uh, risk-taking competitiveness and, to some extent, aspects of sexuality. Um, so, I mean, would you have yeah. anything to say about this apparently gender non-conforming child who is, showing, is saying that they don't want to be part of that tribe um, but doesn't have a good way of being, say, a kind of boy who's interested in what appear to be stereotypically girl yeah I, mean, I, don't, I think I think uh, yeah I, I think I think we don't my understanding is we probably don't know nearly as much as we should about the links between how gender identity actually uh, how it interconnects in childhood with um, gender schemas gender stereotypes and so on and, and you know and children are all going to be different too so for example work by Lynn Liven in the US sort of shows that you know children are actually different into what extent they kind of see the world through a gendered lens. And some ch children, you know, they're thinking very much in terms of, you know, there are boy things and there are girl things. And other children, it's just not such a big deal for whatever reason. I don't know whether it's to do with how much it's emphasised by parents or anything to do with that. But, you know, so these things are not sort of influencing children in a very, necessarily very homogenous way. I think it's all probably very, uh, all very c complex. Um, so I'm afraid I, I can't. Uh, yeah, I can't quite capture the essence of your question. So I'm sorry, but um, yeah. But thank you for trying to draw me. Give me, give me, give me another opportunity to uh, <laughs> step into troubled waters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well.
Thank you, everyone, very much for your questions and for coming. And uh, thank you, Cordelia, for existing and writing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.